All right. This is Landry.audio. Uh, I hope that you're having a good day today. And if you're not, maybe we can make it just a, a little bit better. Um, like every other channel in the social media space these days, we ask you to like, follow, uh, subscribe, and comment, which helps our content perform better through engagement on, on these platforms. Today is episode uh, 59 with, um, I guess for lack of a better term, MMA historian Sonny Brown uh, these days. I've been watching his content for the, the last few years, and it, it is really one of the... Um, there's a lot of channels out there like Modern Mixed Martial Artist. Um, uh, trying to think of some other guys off the top of my head, but I've really found Sonny's content to really sort of be at the apex of understanding how we integrate grappling in terms of MMA, where I guess in a lot of traditional ways, we either look at kickboxing and Muay Thai and then potentially taking it to the ground game. But he's done a fantastic job of, uh, of merging the worlds into the clinch game. And also more recently, um, digging up long lost archive footage to to share it with us um and it turns out he's only about an hour down the road uh from us he's in, in north city i'm in the great city of newcastle straight up so how we are how are we today Sonny? yeah doing pretty pretty well great way to start the week yeah thanks excellent. for having me on also it, it is a monday morning so this is the the first thing that i'm doing today before i try to get through my work day and then and then take the kids to swimming so this will be the the start of it um a lot of things to to talk about. Uh, I guess for for people um, as more of an introduction, you were a, a former fighter yourself. We were on, I guess, kind of around it at roughly the same time. Uh, come through roughly the same BJJ lineage, and you're now at the point of of opening up your your own school. So why don't you take us through a little bit of that journey and, and I guess the headaches associated with that. Yeah, so uh, the uh, school that we've opened up, it's called uh, Apex MMA, and my previous instructor, Anthony Lang, had retired, so we took that as an opportunity to open up uh, a school of our own, so it's myself and Nick Pudney, who's another one of his longtime black belts, and Chad Lumley, and yeah, it's been quite a headache just to get things up and running and find a place and make it all happen in a, a rel relatively fast amount of time uh, since we found out about a retirement and just to, to get it all going and finding the building and, and then stripping it out and painting everything and making it look like a, a gym where people are welcome at and can train and, and learn martial arts rather than the uh, the old air condition air conditioning factory that it used to be. Fair enough. Uh, for people that aren't too familiar, I guess, traditionally with the old school of uh, the Australian jiu-jitsu scene, it's uh, Anthony Lang is one of those old school names. Um, as I said, I came over here in 2004. So uh, he's one of the first names I heard along with like John Donahue and uh, John Will. So what's how far back does he extend into this? Because is he he's one of the original Machado guys over here, isn't he? Yeah, 100%. So he was, I think, the first like MMA school in Sydney, training jujitsu and, you know, everything. But his first fight was in, or, you know, in Shuto in 1995. So he'd been, you know, been training prior to that. And then I think he opened up first in his, you know, in his backyard shed, then a school hall, and then finally moving into the uh the premises that he ended up finishing at in you know the the early 90s pretty much so 
uh, a lot of history and, you know, he was there for pretty much all of the firsts that happened in Australian, you know, MMA and jiu-jitsu, uh, you know, even, of course, having Elvis coach, uh, uh, coaching Elvis and taking him over to the, you know, UFC 30 where he beat Jeremy Horn and, you know, just a lot of the firsts then associated with that as well because, of course, Elvis is a ton of firsts. And indeed, he is. He, that, that's the gym and how I effectively ended up in Australia and Sydney at the time was, um, I think I've told the story a, a couple of times but when I decided to get involved in the sport. I was training in Calgary where I'm from, but we had one of the, um, was it Cage Combat? The first one that, that he fought on with like Mario, Pe- uh, uh, sorry, uh, Mario Sperry. Sperry. Yeah. Um, and who was referee? Ref- I think Cameron Quinn, the, the, mm-hmm. the karate black belt was the referee for that. And that's where I first found about it and was like, well, I'll end up in Sydney, affiliated with SPMA back in the day in 2004, and carried through with them, and then moved on with, with Anthony Parosh uh, beyond that. So that's kind of my story. How, how what was the 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 litmus for you to to get involved in the sport originally? Yeah, so I I had actually uh, had an experience where I was attacked in the in the street right. one time, and uh, you know, quite suffered quite a lot of. Yeah, uh, pre- you know, pretty bad damage. We had a, uh, I was attacked walking home from a house party and had a, you know, fractured skull, a, a subdural really? hematoma, like blood clot on the brain, and kind of lost my confidence very much. So, you know, quite nervous and anxiety, you know, anxious after that. So, a couple of years later, you know, martial arts seemed like a good way to restore. Uh, restore that confidence and you know be a bit more self-assured about my safety uh just walking around the streets unfortunately um and that eventually you know I was lucky to just start training at Anthony's school from the get-go now I'd, I'd seen it in the paper from when Elvis had fought uh Tito Ortiz for the for the heavy uh I think light heavyweight title and so I kind of knew it was there and it seemed like the best school in the area as it did offer an actual, you know, MMA program or shoot fighting. It was called uh, at the time and that just kind of picked it up, started training and then eventually just from training everything. And I was going, you know, doing two classes a day, five days, six days a week. Uh, you know, they, they offered me a fight on just one of the amateur shows and it was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then won that which then means, well, better have another one because winning was pretty good. And, you know, had another one and just kind of snowballed from there. So what what year did you originally begin training then? I think it was 2007 okay. uh, was the first year. So pretty, uh, you know, I think I was mid-20s, so pretty late in comparison to um, a lot of other people nowadays. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. So how long has the gym been been going for now since you set up? Uh, it's only been about two months, I guess, moving into three months now. So still relatively in its infancy. Uh, but so far, things are promising in that, you know, new people are coming in and getting phone calls and, uh, you know, a bit of interest around it. So it's and, you know, classes are are, are going well. So it's it's been good so far. Okay, cool. Well, what's been working for you? I, I've some of the stories I've heard from other gym owners is there's a little bit of um. I, know, I guess black science around how you how you market a martial arts gym these days. Yes, I mean so far it's just been through social media and word of mouth. Um, we're holding off onto 
the advertising side of things just until until we need to. Um, and I mean, the main thing I'm trying to do is just present it as a welcoming and you know, high level place to come and train as well. So welcoming to beginners, but knowing that through the process of following a, you know, a structured beginners program that people can uh, maintain a high level of technical proficiency. Mm. But then a big thing to ensure that that happens is just trying to build the uh, culture or just nurture the culture or let that, you know, continue as it is into that kind of welcoming uh, environment where everyone's kind of helping each other and lifting, lifting each other up. Yeah. Fair enough. So are you, are you doing this full-time now? A lot of gyms start out as sort of part-time endeavors where they open up in the evenings while you're working a normal nine to five. How, how is this, how is this yes. been organized for you? So still uh, part-time, I guess you'd say. And then I would like to get to the point where the, you know, I can make that decision or that decision becomes a problem. Yeah. to to have to to have to deal with that would be good but yeah still just uh working working at the gym every night and then working a couple of days a week um during the day okay cool um as i said i i, I really got a lot of appreciation for you in the, in the breakdown videos that you do and i find this sort of um an interesting concept to, around gyms and how they market themselves these days uh to me uh mma or mixed martial arts now is is it's it's its own sport truly but i still find gyms and i'm sure yours probably operates the same is we will do one hour of muay thai and then we will do one hour of brazilian jiu-jitsu and i think as i said through your videos what i think is that what you've really done and what i appreciate is linking those two worlds to together about how we move from outside a distance to the clinch to taking it down which which goes beyond wrestling I assume your gym's still doing the, the same thing and, and perhaps it's a marketing thing, but why don't you think that there's a little bit more credence given to just doing MMA as its as its own sort of, you know, bona fide yeah. lesson plan? Yeah, so we do, I guess, the majority the same way as you've described. We've got a, a couple of dedicated MMA classes a week, which I take and, and do focus on those areas of, you know, closing the distance, wall wrestling and uh, grapple boxing which are you know wholly unique to mma um and but i think the the biggest thing is just even when people might have a you know idea that they want to try mma or get into it it's just the uh the process of learning mma as a whole which is you know potentially three or four separate arts in one lesson is uh, it's you know it's just a lot more difficult than just focusing on the individual arts so even now like what we might find is people might come in with an intention to learn mma but then what after doing a kickboxing lesson or a jujitsu lesson they find you know one of those arts a bit more compatible with them and they kind of filter off into doing that on its own uh is it's you know a bit easier to learn just a single art um it's also there's generally more people in those classes as there's more people just wanting to learn the single arts than to do MMA as a whole. And so it, it could even be a bit of a you know, self-perpetuating thing like that. Mm. How long do you think it actually takes to learn MMA these days? And, and as you said, it, it really seems that people enter a gym and say, I want to do MMA, and then they end up doing either striking or uh, BJJ. Very few people sort of become 
uh, clinch fighters or, or wrestlers yeah. in, in that respect. And, and I've always found that that is really the, the linchpin to the game. It's like, if you can get good at that, that's what allows you as far as I'm concerned to, to, to kind of move through there. A couple of years of striking. I think we know BJJ takes a, a little bit longer to become proficient in, but what is it? You, you reckon sort of like a five-year plan to, I guess, sort of make you cage proficient or something along those lines? Yeah, I'd say, and, you know, depending on the individual, uh, particularly if someone's had a bit of athletic experience uh, previously, but I, I reckon that, you know, three to five year mark, then, you know, they should be putting putting things together quite well. Um, you know, maybe that two year mark is a good spot to, you know, be aiming for a bit of proficiency in amateur type uh, type areas. Uh, but that's that's another thing is like those areas of of clinch fighting, uh, you know, grapple boxing, uh, they are a bit more, I'd say, tougher or just a bit more, uh, you know, visceral than confronting is confronting. Is yeah, use. that's a good one. Yeah. Than some of the other, you know, than the individual arts themselves. So that's another you know reason why people might shy away from it. Mm. do you notice that with um with female students as well because it, it, traditionally almost in like every gym i've been part of it's been very hard to have female students continue to do bjj they just they uh, a lot of them seem really off put by how in your face is the sport is compared to being able to you know strike and, and retain distance or, or anything like that yeah for sure i mean that's one thing that is a bit of a goal is just to increase the uptake of of female membership just as i think it's a sign of a somewhat healthy gym if you know people it's not being scared you know people aren't being scared away by by some of those factors um it's and i mean i i kind of i understand it too there's times when i'm doing jujitsu or something like that where i you know it's a bit too confronting for me when uh you know when you've got you know someone massive sitting on top of you or something like that uh so i, I you know i get it and understand it and i think it's just uh, as long as the intent and the culture of how thing you know how roles are going and stuff is right then it's then it's no problem and that's really what the goal is because you can still have tough roles with people but you know that there's that uh there's that in, intent behind things where it's okay we're just you know having fun and learning versus they're really trying to be out to get you or something like that which is you know like a necessary for a competition feel or, or things like that but doesn't necessarily have to be every single night Mm. how do you like to to roll these days um anth always told me he goes you're generally looking for three roles when you get in the gym you're looking for an easy role a hard role and you're equal so that, that way you, you can develop your game against someone that's easy you learn to survive against someone that's hard and then effectively you put your best game up against someone who's uh, on, on relatively the same level as you yeah pretty much now i mean the, the majority of my roles is just you know, focus number one on staying safe and just, you know, making sure I can come back tomorrow. Um, and then it's really just trying to implement whatever it is I'm working on or teaching or, you know, going to, going to be teaching next and just uh, having the opportunity to kind of put those in place. And then also now it's, you know, trying to roll with as many people in the club as possible, just so everyone you know, get to, I get to know people and also get to, uh, you know, see where their games are at as well. So I can kind of get an understanding of where everyone's at. Okay. You had, I want to say about 15 fights. Is, is that? Uh, 11, I think all up. 11. Okay. Uh, I guess at, at what point, um, 
you know, you, you make the decision that, that this isn't me for me, me for me anymore, or mm. it's taking up too much of my time. What, at what point did that decision come for you? So it was probably driving uh, from the last fight in Wollongong to Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney with a broken arm. Um, <laughs> so during that last fight, I blocked a kick, probably incorrectly, um, from a from a southpaw, and it broke uh, broke my arm clean through. I kept fighting for maybe a minute or so after that. You know, knowing that this where the pain was in the middle of the arm was probably broken. Um, and then I got knocked out, unfortunately. And then as soon as I got backstage, I knew that the arm was broken and thought, you know what, it's time to time to give it up. There's just too much uh, too much time and effort and into to put into preparation. And then the the injury then took me, um, you know, took t- takes time to recover and can't train, can't do anything. So that was the idea from there to go into coaching. Okay. I, I asked that question because um, the, I, I'm certainly not as experienced that I went through the same thing though. I had my eye socket broken and ended up at Royal No Short for the, doing the same thing overnight. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, we're the anomalies. What I mean by that is we are still the hangers on to a sport that we can't, you know, participate or, or compete yeah. in anymore. Um what sort of kept your interest? Because as you know, a, a lot of people will do, you know, the, the three to four years of hard, you know, two years to learn the sport, a couple of years of competition, they go, I'm done with it. And then they, they just fall off the, the face of the planet. But there's guys like you and me still, I guess, pretending that we're younger than we, yeah. than we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, I think it's probably, and it's the same reasons I probably got involved, which it, um, you know, when I started to enjoy the sport for itself is, you know, you can do it every night, uh, you know, rain, hail or shine. It's also a good social thing. So, you know, a lot of my friends now have come through uh, training and, and pretty much everyone I've met through doing martial arts are all, you know, healthy, uh, uh, you know, well-adjusted individuals who, you know, uh, enjoy other people's company. So, and then it's also just the pursuit of trying to still improve. So I think there could be a relationship to people who stick in martial arts and maybe a bit of perfectionism and just trying to, you know, okay, I'm, I've, I've still got a certain area of the game to work on and I keep want to keep trying to improve it. And while it's, you know, in some ways actually it might be healthier just to let some things go in that regard, um, you know, here I am still trying to improve every, you know, every week essentially. We talked about this very, very briefly before we turn on the recorder. How do you think that affects us as we get older? The as an example, it's like if you're not practicing the high kick, the high kick doesn't work anymore. It starts to look uh, fairly poor. You start to lose your balance associated with it, and and that flows on to to many, many other aspects. So when you talk about improvement, what what do you think that means as as you get older and you can do less and less? Yeah. So, I mean, now the big thing is, I guess, improvement in coaching. And part of that then is knowledge of uh, either particular techniques or particular coaching methods and just trying to, you know, improve then. So it can be either like reflection on how classes went or just trying to gather new knowledge of uh, techniques and their implementations in you know in live situations so while i even now it's uh, you know i have to 
recognize that some parts of the game won't be for me in either, you know, like high kicks. I'm not trying to do this Van Damme splits or anything like that. Um, but just having that knowledge of, you know, if someone does have that flexibility, okay, how can we tell them how to implement it successfully, you know, from scratch and then how to implement it into live sparring situations and just being able to help them improve on their, with their own goals really uh, is that now how I'm trying to you know improve myself. Mm. It, it's sort of, I guess what we're sort of rolling into how I originally found out about you because of, I can't remember where it was. Uh, I want to say maybe about five years ago, I started seeing your, your Sunny Brown content pop up. And I think if I'm not mistaken. I, I think maybe the the first ones that, that I saw were the, were the pure MMA clinch game stuff of like fade or breakdowns, Randy yep. breakdowns um, did a really good one with Linlin, which I think he even acknowledged, which was, which was great to see and, and recognize. So uh, at what point did you decide that, that you're going to start, I guess, analyzing this content and sharing it? Yeah. So I, I guess it probably would have been around the same time that I stopped fighting and decided I wanted to coach. So it was part of that process realizing actually that, okay, if I'm, I, I should, if I rewind, I think at first when I started coaching, I probably only felt comfortable showing strictly moves that I had pulled off in live competition. Um, Cause I thought that that, you know, in, in terms of uh, credibility, that should be the only stuff that I, I can show now, of course I, you know, I wasn't a encyclopedia of moves uh, that, that I, that I had, actually managed to perform successfully so i soon realized okay well how am i going to feel justified in showing something that i haven't pulled off successfully in live competition Mm. and i guess going into the breakdown area was was part of that if i you know if i have enough knowledge of the of the topic and then could then pull it off in a in just a sparring session or something like that then i then i would feel comfortable showing it so i'd seen the you know, uh, like Jack Slack, BJJ Scout, um, Lawrence Kenshin, uh, Brendan Dorman was another guy. Um, but they had their videos online doing breakdowns and I figured that I would like to give one a shot and just started to develop it from there. So the reason those ones were starting off with, I guess, the, you know, clinch game and, and things like that was because those were the things that I was wanting to be teaching and, and showing people as, it, the, you know, the kind of glue between the different arts within MMA is what I felt would make MMA lessons unique enough that could separate it from, you know, from a pure striking, pure grappling or pure wrestling class. Uh, I, I agree with you. That That's what I, I really find interesting is, you know, like when you go back and watch old Fedor footage, the way that he overextends himself to into body locks and trip takedowns uh, and, and same with coach trying to just find to, to be able to, you know, do trip takedowns and stuff. Um, did you know uh, at, at the time, because I've still learned a lot from your breakdown videos as well. So did you all know all this? Because I've had to do completely separate interviews with, you know, wrestling historians and other fighters to better understand, you know, folk style, how that rolled into professional wrestling, how, um, you know, as, as you probably know now, how BJJ we're starting to find out actually came out of catch in a lot of respects. Um, and I guess a lot of things that, uh, that, that most people really would be completely unaware of and, and especially over on this side of the world. Yeah. So I guess 
I can't remember exactly how I ended up finding that out. So one thing I did start doing too is just collecting old instructional books. One of the first, when I was like doing the Fedor book, I there was a great series of books by a, a company called Victory Belt Publishing that is probably the best uh, martial arts technique books uh, I think that have ever been published, in, uh, especially in the, the modern era and had, you know, Anderson Silva, BJ Penn, Fedor, Randy Couture, Matt Lindland had a great book as well. Um, and so part of it was, you know, buying those books. And then as I started looking for, uh, you know, martial arts instructional books, um, eventually you see, find some of the old catch wrestling ones and think, oh, what's this? And then, you, you know, I, I guess that was probably the the start of going down that rabbit hole because it doesn't take long before you realize how, um you know how interesting it is that these things are so interconnected, but probably not as well known or you know or referenced or or uh, you know kind of swept under the rug a little bit. Mm. Well, when it comes to to grappling, and I guess you know BJJ is what, is what we're both a little bit more well known on. I, I mentioned this to you at the start. It seems that at least in my experience is that you will talk to guys that they go, oh, you know, I've played soccer for two decades. Uh, you know, I play footy for a decade. You know, I went through the amateurs and now I'm in the seniors team. What I find in, in a lot of ways, is it seems like at least in our sport in, in martial arts, there's a lot of guys that go, oh, you know, I, I did it for 18 months. I did it for 24 months and completely walk away from it. And, and, and there doesn't seem to be, a, I guess, in a lot of respects, the the depth of, of senior guys that we would see in other sports. Am, am I right in that? And, and if I am, why do you think that is? I think, I mean, it probably is just the toll that it takes uh, on the body. And then probably, you know, the, the way things are divided up in the, you know, in competitions for soccer or something like that, I'm sure that once you know once you reach a, a certain age you're not competing or training with the 20 year olds who are looking to go pro or something like that they're probably in different categories different training sessions where in jiu-jitsu it still might be expected we're all on the same mat and maybe the you know that uh that 20 year old who wants to go pro decides that well i want to beat this this person who you know, who has more experience than me, higher rank than me, maybe more historical accolades than me and can go after them. And it's, and it, it is, you know, acceptable probably, you know, as, as it's brutal, uh, isn't it? As they should, it's brutal. Right. <laughs> um, and you just don't see that in, in, I think other sports and that can be, you know, eventually I think guys can just get, you know, get over that essentially. And like, well, I've done my time. I've learned some skills. I've had some fun, but I don't really want to keep, uh, keep rolling with a target on my back or just, you know, even if it's just injuries or something like that. So it's, it's a, it's a big point because it's something I want to really make sure that the culture is that, the recognition that people who have been doing it a long time probably have knowledge that they can share and that they bring value to uh, remaining at training and that they, you know, they can be a resource to help the younger uh, practitioners and that, that, you know, it shouldn't be uh, a default that, that eventually that as the situation you're describing take place where people just decide to hang it up Uh you know, which they could do for many reasons, but being chased off or just, you know, not given their appropriate respect is being one of those. Mm. Uh, when through your breakdowns as well, uh, the, those those breakdowns you've been doing involved into a couple of other things. Um, 
again, I didn't even know it was your content. I started looking at, at a Fedor seminar and then a Habib seminar yeah. popped up in their, you know, original Russian languages. And who do I find has been the mastermind to subtitle these for all of our enjoyments, but it's you again. Um, I, I, I can assume that that's a lot of work and, and I can assume that there's not much profit that comes off the back of that. So what becomes sort of the, the motivation or who do you even approach to say, Hey, look, I, you know, I found this hour long seminar. I need, I need someone to go out and subtitle it. And, and I guess just, um, doing something pretty selfless for for the martial arts community to to pick up some knowledge and enjoy yeah so that was yeah that there was a time when i found yeah a russian who would offer to translate stuff for me and so yeah i just had these fedor seminars that i'd watched and all these habib clips that i'd watched and just trying to figure out what they were showing and really wanted to understand what they were saying to see if i could garner some more insight through it so yeah just sent sent them over and then that was also information that i used when i was doing my breakdowns on them uh so it was part of the research process i guess for doing before doing a breakdown you know just try and get as much information as i could on the the fighter itself and that was yeah i guess probably going an extra step for the for the russian fighters yeah so because i remember these um these victory books that you talked about which were effectively like you know picture books of, of all the moves that would you know come out there but now you're starting to uncover like historical so like 1920s black and white footage where how where is this coming from because this this almost feels like a new depth to, to what you're doing compared to previously of really walking into this um from coach to historian space yeah so that was it probably uh started i guess sometime during covid lockdown where had extra extra time to uh to to go into new new avenues and i'd seen a there was a video online where someone had restored footage of like early 1900s new york and they'd restored it colorized it and i was like that's really that's, that was really cool i want to know how to do this which is uh, you know how a lot of things happen i just i will see something and think oh that's cool i want to give it a shot and so I you know found a tutorial on how to do it and i knew that that there was some old footage that i'd uh, scene of you know catch wrestling and such like that beforehand uh one on there was someone on youtube and then archive.org is another good uh good resource for it and i just started working on on those ones and and also the original footage from uh kimura versus helio gracie as well and so I just, yeah, again, just started going down that rabbit hole and just trying to see what footage I could possibly find and and restore to what level of quality and colorize and kind of give it new life. And then also what I've, what I've got enjoyment from is also when these videos have got a lot of views is like, I think it's cool trying that it's, you know, brought it to a whole new audience and people who may have never seen it before and, and probably would, you know, would turn off a black, a grainy black and white bit of film or something, but they're able to, you know, that captures their attention and, and just to spread that understanding of how long some of these, some of these arts uh, go back. Mm. I, I spoke with a, another gentleman who's up here by the name of Paul Cupid, who, trains up at one of the gyms called alpha and he, he's a bit of a boxing historian and he gave me a really good interview and again i was completely unaware of this because probably like you it's like i don't mind boxing but it was really mma that got me into combat sports and they're, they're quite different to view but he was explaining to me that you know when you go back to i guess probably 1940s and, and pre before that uh, of just how light training boxers did because they were fighting much more regularly but also the usage of 
a lot more clinch based tactics, um, you know, framing and, and overnight really dirty stuff um, that trying try to think um, so maybe Jack Dempsey would close space and actually come in with his elbow over the top and knock people out over the ropes. Um, I, I guess, did, did you uncover a lot of that? Because I, I, I hadn't been aware of how much clinch action had actually been in, in you know, old school boxing around the turn of the century sort of thing. Yeah, a lot of it. Um, a lot. I mean, a lot of the modern dirty boxing techniques, or you know, and it's just called dirty boxing as it's outside of the rule set. But it was just boxing before, um, you know, for a while. So a lot of that clinch fighting, guys like uh, Jack Johnson, I think Sandy Sadler, Archie Moore, uh, did a lot of you know clinch fighting that really resembles what you would see in modern MMA. And part of the hope actually, I think with a lot of people was when this bare knuckle boxing kind of made the, made a bit of a comeback that we might have seen a bit more of that. And that, you know, that we might see some of those old tactics come back, but unfortunately uh, that really hasn't seemed to be the case. Um, it's really just modern boxing, but just people getting cut up and a bit more. So, um, but yeah, there's, a, you know, there was a lot more clinch fighting, going on in in the in the early boxing era it's interesting because you know when you look at bare knuckle and bkfc as you said it was pointed out to me it said well you know with with that they can get in there and fight maybe call a tie and punch and it hasn't materialized i'm and and by that same token i'm quite surprised that they continue to use grapplers as opposed to uh boxers for it do you think it's just maybe that that today more ufc athletes have name recognition is, is that sort of why the uh, like, as an example like giant silver doing bare knuckle boxing it doesn't quite make a lot of sense to me in a lot of ways yeah yeah well i think it's also that they, for some reason they've got a bit of money and they're, they're able just to attract attract those people um and then i think you know the other thing is, is probably a lot of that those styles clinching styles and stuff like that may have you know arisen due to people being far more cautious of, of uh you know particular injuries which would have, you know, the 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 medical field being able to heal things and stitch things up and everything wouldn't have been, you know, as as far advanced. Mm. Whereas now people kind of, I I think would just you know throw caution to the wind and know that the you know the hospital will be, will be able to take care of it afterwards in a in a relatively, uh, you know, decent fashion. Um, so I think there are those you know cultural. Uh, you know, cultural influences around and, you know, even medical science influences that then actually influence on the the, the techniques themselves. So I think, you know, the, the, but the grapplers being drawn over is, is, you know, is probably just the the money that these guys have um, that, they, that they're not going to be able to get in, in probably grappling on its own. Mm. You mentioned Jack Johnson um, many years ago. I, I, got hold of the documentary is unforgivable blackness I think it's the, the big, excellent the, documentary it's yeah one of the best I've, I've ever seen without knowing much about him uh prior to that and and you know and from there i explored and i really hadn't uh, it, to me it seems like an overlooked piece of australian history where because mm, yeah. the, the first black champion to come out of boxing happens here in sydney in rush cutters bay and uh, was it 1906 boxing day i, I want to so. say yeah somewhere around there and no one had ever told me the story and I really haven't heard it from, from anyone since. And, and to me, it, it's, I, I mean, at, as a Canadian, who did he beat? Was it Jim, Jim Corbett that, that he beat for, who was a Canadian fighter avoided Oof. fighting him. So I'm, it's blanking at the moment. It's, it's kind of like this, this dual 
Canadian Australian thing that you see behind me, but I'm really surprised that this hasn't been kind of recognized as a, as a larger piece of a, of Australian history. I, I mean, I guess, what do you think about that? Yeah, actually, I think the name, I think maybe it was Tommy Burns. It was but, Burns. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, that's, I was fascinated when I found that out too, that it was, oh, what, this happened just up the road, you know? Um, so I think they've put a plaque up there now. A couple of years couple of, ago. Yeah. Only a couple of years ago to kind of commemorate it. But of course, for such a significant bout to happen on Boxing Day as well, uh, you know, you'd think that there would that be that, you know, widespread rec- recognition or just for such a historical moment. Um, as to why it's been just kind of ignored, I, you know, I don't know for sure. Um, you know, it's one, it's probably just got to be cultural. Um, but, and then just, I guess a lot of things from that era were ignored as well. So, um, but I think it's a real shame. I think it really should, especially people in fight sports, uh, should be more aware of it. Yeah, it it's just find it so bizarre well i mean the arena doesn't exist anymore it's like there's no traces of it as you said mm. there's there's a small plaque that, that's been put over there but beyond that it's uh it seems lost lost to history um all right gracie's and machados so uh i think it's as we mentioned before you and i both come from this machado lineage uh, as it came into uh australia at the heart of it, we know Machado's are Gracie's. They all come from the same family, but they seem to have spun off into, uh, I guess, uh, theologically and 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 how they pursue things a, a little bit different. What what's your take on, on sort of you know Gracie's and Machado's and how they've uh, converged in their own way, converged or yeah. diverted rather? Yeah, sure. So I I think probably just at a at a larger level, it seems like the Machado's as a whole were just more open minded. And that has kind of led to, you know, people uh, kind of taking, you know, taking jujitsu and then being able to express it in their own ways. So, I mean, you'll find a lot of, of obviously with John Will, uh, you know, having many schools in Australia that are Machado based um, and then also and, and then allowing those schools to kind of express themselves, you know, how they want. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, in Australia who have a Machado background and but it may not be as well known or recognized whereas or they've you know they've taken on their own names whereas you know i think the gracies have been much more structured and you know regimented and kind of defined so that if you know if someone's come from a gracie school it's probably much more well known that it is gracie itself than than machado um so i think that you know at a broad level that is probably how I see things with the Machados being a bit more open-minded, a bit more open. And then the, the Gracie's being a bit more regimented, which is, I think probably necessary for the growth of jujitsu to, to get to that point. Um, and, you know, and, and help it spread around the world. So that's, you know, at a, at a wide level, that's how I, how I see the, the, the split be. Mm. So, so does that mean? Because um, I've I've never been affiliated with Gracie. I've been you know Machado since I came over here. So does that mean sort of the the Gracie, as far as you would know, st- are a little bit more based still in that um you know Gracie's combative self defense style of, of jujitsu? Yeah, I think there'll be a lot more just as a general thing. Again, you know, more more focus on self defense and the focus on you know that being what Gracie Jiu Jitsu used to spread itself uh, throughout throughout the world. Um, and and so I, I definitely think there's a there's a focus on it there. Then you know because at the you know 
I, th- I think with the brothers too, they've kind of the, the Machado brothers. They've all kind of gone in their own separate routes, doing their own doing their own things. You've got Hegan now. Uh, I think you know having a success with his celebrity jujitsu you know program, and you know John Jacks and Carlos and John. They've you know they're all doing their own separate things, and they seem. I, I would say as a whole, I think they also seem you know all quite happy, um, which I think is a good is a good goal too, that they, you know, they seem happy. Whereas maybe the Gracies, um, you know, you, you hear at least a lot more drama within that, within that uh, circle, family circle itself. So maybe that, you know, that regimented and trying to stick to that, uh, you know, a structure could, could possibly be, and you know, one indication of, of things there, whereas that open-mindedness has allowed that kind of happiness uh, to, to flourish. But they've, you know, the the Machados themselves. I mean, one thing we can say is there doesn't seem to be many high level competitors or anything coming out of those uh, out of those schools, or um, you know, just as, as a general as a general thing. So I think that they are now more focused on you know just being happy, having fun doing jujitsu, and you know, having fun teaching it, um, which yeah, which I think is interesting as well. Mm. Um, sport BJJ, and I guess the way that that it's evolved now, because you know you you do commentary for Subversion as well. Um, it it seems I was probably behind the curve, and I'm still behind the curve when it comes to the modern leg lock game. And I don't think I'll ever get particularly good at it now that I'm into my 40s and you know guard inversion, all that stuff. Uh, it's, it's like alien science to me in in a lot of respects but it, i sort of remember this turning a curve around 2010 but a lot of guys were saying like you know around 2005 was actually when delaheva and stuff like that was coming in but i was only starting out then when do you do you remember a time or i guess can you pick point a, a particular year or something when you started to notice the game really drastically changing from i guess the, the way that you and i started and the way that we still teach which is passing the hips and kind of mm. you know, throwing that that game plan out the window yeah, I, I mean, I, I really think that you the modern game you have to ascribe to, you know, John Danaher and his, uh, you know, his systems and how he's kind of changed things, which started with leg locks, but has just changed pretty much, you know, how everything operates at the high level. Um, I think, you know, you could you could give a nod to to Eddie Bravo as well, obviously, with, you know, uh, a popularization of Nogi, um, not doing Nogi only. And, you know, he did probably have one of the, at least the first system, you know, systems that I saw with his books fully flow charted out and everything like that. Um, and also providing the stage, I guess, to the, the Danaher Discord early on. Um, but whatever, whatever year that was where, you know, the, the Danaher Discord was competing at ABI, I think that really, you know, from then on. That it, was the breakout became, year, was it? I, I think so. And then, uh, yeah, I, I don't think we can go, we can overlook just how much that that influenced things from then on. Mm. How do you think about, or I guess theoretically, what's your thoughts on learning a system like that for the longer term? Because as I said, like, you're, you're soon to be 40. I'm already into my 40s. If you're developing this as your game from the time that you're 18, do, do you think, you know, um, guard inversion and, and K-guard and all these other things are are, are feasible in, in, in the long term of being able to practice or train this? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question because something I've thought about myself where a lot of the, 
you know, the techniques are we we look at the techniques that the professionals are doing and expect kind of, you know, as a whole, every everyone should be able to do them. But these are, you know, professional athletes showing you what they're doing that are normally, you know, uh, nutritionally enhanced with some with some excellent <laughs> supplements. And they're also willing to make large sacrifices for the longevity of their career or, you know, all their bodies to be able to compete at the high levels. So it's, uh, you know, it's if we're just taking their everything they're doing wholesale and having the understanding that we should do it without quite fully understanding if we are prepared to make the same sacrifices, then I think they, you know, things can be problematic. Uh, the way that they're able to, or, you know, willing to just let things, uh, submissions get deep and, you know, potentially have injuries get caused during matches and stuff like that. We can't look at that as the, you know, as the regular way to do the sport. We have to understand that these people have decided to make the decision to be a professional and, and, make a uh make that sacrifice that there's going to be potentially broken bones or you know long-term injuries or stuff like that with the the pursuit of these techniques and we just unless people are at least aware that that's the sacrifice that they're going to have to make then it i don't think we should just wholesale take everything that that they're doing in their in the matches and just unquestionably you know, implement it and replicate it. I think we just have to at least be aware of those things. And especially with the, with the issues of, of, uh, you know, supplements and, and things like that. So, so if anyone's, uh, I guess on the peripheral of this war effect, we're really talking about leg locks these days. And, and for the most part, generally giving up top position to seek them out, I guess is what we're talking about with it. So there's probably a lot of ways to, to go into this conversation because I find this part fascinating because it's so different to, the purpose of why I came into the sport was to effectively learn fighting skills. And this, while it is a fighting skill, there's a lot of things in, in terms of, you know, giving up position, being on the bottom, that, that, that is very different, I guess, to the way that that would have been taught. So while we're talking about this, probably the first point is, um, as, as you mentioned, a lot of guys are doing this now and they are ending up in a competition on a Saturday you know, somebody who's in the gym five days, twice a week, practicing this against a hobbyist who comes in twice a week, who's being told by his gym to go out and get some experience and then coming off the mats with, you know, ruptured knees and, and sort of things like that. Are, are we sort of at a point or, or how do we try to look at this a little bit more where, you know, not all blue belts are equal, not all purple belts are equal, not all browns and not all blacks are equal. How, how do we um, try to find some level of, of equalization as the sport grows? Yeah, I think now I'm not uh, fully, uh, I don't have a full understanding of how this works, but I believe one of the best things I've I've seen as a uh, counter to, to everyone competing in belt rank is that at least having a division that's kind of uh, separated by how chess does their rankings. I believe they have, you know, power rankings or where if you, you know, if you beat certain pe- people, your, your average ranking goes up and then you're matched up in, in a, in accordance with that ranking so it's kind of based just on uh skills over how you do in in matches themselves and i think that could be a you know a potential way to kind of level the playing fields out um i mean you know local tournaments now kind of 
we will, you know, group it into maybe three categories for Nogi with, you know, based on years training and things like that. But even those are not the best uh, measure of, you know, someone's skill level or or how they want to, um, you know, or how, you know, how much they're training or how serious they're taking it to compete. Um, so I, I don't think that there is, a, you know, a better solution other than perhaps this chess ranking way. Um so I kind of think that the you know the, at least the the current belt ranking at least provides a rough a rough guide that's probably the best of a bad lot. Mm, I just I think it's so different because it's like when I compare the two, it's like I would prefer to be knocked out than to go into a competition and have my you know leg torn off where I'm then in surgery and I require a year to rehab. And I think it's just such a it's it's so different now where you know you, you got to pay an admission fee you got to wait to get on the mats and then you just get your leg ripped apart for something that you do as a hobby it's it's um it's it's very it's different it's just it's just yeah. different to the way that i i grew up looking this where um you, you know uh, i'm trying to think about who who explored that that idea and and they were saying that you know fundamentally it's changed the way bjj is because originally bjj was about being able to hold someone on the ground that doesn't matter at all now because mm-hmm. you're immediately going to the butt scoop position with the expectation of somebody engaging you. I mean, to me, they're, they're almost like 180. Where do you think this will, I guess, kind of advance to? Because you hear guys like Dan Hurt talking about how this is going to evolve back into the stand-up game. But in if it's just a traditional BJJ no-gi match, you, you can pull guard automatically. It just it really seems the the need or desire for any forms of takedown isn't isn't there anymore yeah so this is i guess guess this is something that that i've thought about which is like you know the the way that leg locks were kind of frowned upon from the gracies which can be traced back to i believe it was a you know a challenge match that they had against uh oswaldo fada uh competitors and they all leg locked the Gracies, I believe, uh, against Helio Gracie's school, and and were they um, like Luta Livre guys or, or something? No, like that? they were just just different different jujitsu style. Um, but then there was also the Luta Livre, you know, battles themselves, and I think that that's we can kind of look at that as being, uh, you know, perhaps a cause for you know leg locks to be frowned up, frowned on. You know, oh, they beat us with it, so maybe that was a bit of uh, a bit of the cause. But then also. You know, perhaps it was also the, you know, the levels of injuries that they knew. So they were, you know, in the terms of spreading the sport, they knew that if people are getting seriously injured with leg locks, which do take longer to recover from if there is serious injuries being, you know, load-bearing joints than, you know, than even arm bars or, or such, um, you know, they, they knew perhaps that that would hamper the development of the sport as well. So that's that's how they took things out. And now that that's kind of everything's, all of those reasons that maybe or limitations that maybe the Gracies had put on it in their regimented style, uh, you know, being kind of removed and just allowed to be more free expression of jujitsu just for the techniques themselves. There is a part of me that wonders if that will end up, you know, negatively impacting the sport in the long term if it just becomes, you know, uh, you know, uh, smother chokes are, are back in fashion again now, which again that was you know it was only six months ago and that wasn't considered real jujitsu that was just dirty catch wrestling and now people are smothering people from mount um you know every day like gordon ryan and and that's that's now fine and if 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 all these techniques that had kind of been frowned upon and kept out culturally all kind of come back in 
it, we look at it as the evolution of the sport, but I'm there's a part of me that wonders, well, if if they all go back in, is that going to end up actually negatively impacting the development of the sport in a certain way? And there's nothing to say that it that it will, other than just you know, just just a, a curiosity on it, I guess. Uh, a few months ago, I spoke to um, Larry Papadopoulos, and he he believes that wrist locks are going to be the one to to come back in, into form, which is not much that we play with at all because it's always been designed for you know, punching and, and grappling to to support that. But um, what do you think that means? Um, or I guess rather, it, what what I'm alluding to is all of this seems to be spinning off and completely diverging from from mm. from you know what Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was created, the blueprint for how you use grappling in a combat situation to win a fight when somebody's punching you. This stuff looks uh, completely different. And we haven't, you know, some guys have been able to do it. You, you know, uh, Dean Lister was was sort of in the early UFC guys. Gary Tonin's made it work for him. Um, uh, you know, we've seen Ryan, Ryan Hall seems to have his number figured out now in, in the UFC. Do you think at some point this will actively become, uh, I guess, a, a specialty that can take someone there, or is it too far removed from from what's actually happening in a cage fight? Yeah, I, I think eventually it's going to have to be too far removed, um, just with the development. It's it's and way things are going. If you want to get good at nogi jujitsu, you're probably going to have to develop a game that is just shifting away for what's useful in MMA so much I think as, as you're getting at the the you know what was used to uh, successfully produce uh, jiu-jitsu champions before and spread it around the world was the idea of positions which was ba- and scoring positions which was based on your ability to get struck from certain positions which now especially sub only rules it just doesn't it doesn't matter as much so it's while people can, you know, can modify their game. I mean, even I think, you know, from a certain era, the whole point of training jujitsu was, you know, to have a MMA fight and, and kind of test jujitsu against other arts. And, mm. you know, and people I train with from that era, it's like everyone had a fight at least yes. um, just to try and test it. There's, you know, they might not talk about it or, you know, make, make, make a big deal of it. It was just one fight, but it was kind of everyone almost had just one. Um, whereas now that the the opportunities in the sport itself are there that um, just to test your jujitsu against other jujitsu, that people can just take that avenue and and seek fulfillment from it. So I think the the rise of it as a spectator sport too, uh, at least in you know in terms of ADCC, I think being the model of you know filling out a stadium of just people wanting to watch nogi jujitsu. Uh, that if that keeps happening, um, I, and I, I don't think it'll ever, you know, reach crossover for people who don't train wanting to watch mm. it. But if it can still, like, you know, if it can still fill, you know, stadiums or arenas or whatever, just for people wanting to watch jujitsu itself, I think that that's going to inevitably take it away from its uh, usefulness within an MMA context. Sure. So, so you're saying we won't see the just bleed guy show up to ADCC? <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to make uh, make any broad claims like that because uh, that guy's a legend. <laughs> um, so I think I alluded to this, or, or I think I asked you. We weren't too particular, but as I said, you're commenting for these sorts of events, and, and you're actively watching him and teaching us. Where do you sort of see this headed to? We are seeing this divergence, but now when it comes to um, you know. Uh, 
open guard to raising the butterfly um, to getting on, underneath them. You know, even deep half seems like a, a weird position to me in terms of, you know, the, the way that they're using it. Some guys are actively using it in MMA, but when we talk about no-gi jiu-jitsu, what do you think this is going to, because um, it, it's now about stopping leg locks. So where do you see this kind of evolution potentially headed next? Yeah, so, I mean, a big thing that's that's happening is using leg locks to take the back um, is, is something that happened, I guess, more over the last year. Uh, whereas people defend leg locks and are turning out, people are wrestling up and and taking the back from there. Um, so I mean that's probably something that's that's already happening. In terms of where where it could go, that's you know that's I'm I'm not too sure on on where the next evolution could possibly be. Um, uh, you know, I, I the thing that is fascinating me is is all the you know the 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 individual techniques, like even the finishing chokes from the back now, um, just turning into face cranks and you know face chokes they're calling it, which fine I guess, but you know it's it, it's just those techniques that were perhaps frowned upon or considered not good jujitsu now, or all of a sudden good jujitsu that I just find interesting. It's just getting nasty all around, yeah. isn't it? All, yeah. all the all the all the manners that, that were out of like good jujitsu practice just been thrown out the door these days. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, within the videos as well, as I said, probably I don't know when it was. Maybe over the last five years, we've really started to see uh, catch wrestling has made a, a name for itself. And again, it wasn't something that I was aware of. I just started hearing a little bit more of it. You know, some some you know guys like Randy Couture are absolutely fully on the bandwagon now. I think they're integrating it over at Extreme Couture. Um, I honestly can't remember when and where I started hearing about it, but Eric Paulson is the name I've always associated with this going back and, and Josh Barnett and, and then, you know, Sakuraba, that's probably the earliest, but it's just, uh, it seems like this sort of very new wave jujitsu has just come out of, has come out of nowhere. And, and it seems to have piqued your interest as well, because it is based a little bit more. It's trend. It's usage seems to translate a lot more over to MMA of, of taking that top position. So Take me how how it sort of crossed your desk and, and I guess what you're thinking of it now for, for the purposes of grappling. Yeah, so, I mean, that was very much, uh, you know, when I was doing just research and stuff like that, coming across those books and then being, uh, you know, just seeing those those techniques like, you know, leg locks and stuff happening in, you know, 1890 or whatever it is and just realizing, oh, there's, there's a whole nother lineage or, or, you know, history with these things and then, the more I read, the more fascinated I got with it and then tracing it through to the modern era, which, you know, understanding its role in the development of MMA in Japan with, you know, Pancrase and Shudo all having influence from catch wrestling. And then, uh, you know, even, you know, coming from that jujitsu background, just kind of not knowing about it and then finding out about it and you realize, oh yeah, how did, you know, when I was watching Choke with Hicks and Gracie, it's like, oh, how did Yuki Nakai know to go for a heel hook? Like where, where was he learning this if he wasn't doing, if he was against jujitsu? Like how did he know these techniques? Um, and then kind of looking, you know, digging deeper, but I think the, so like, and then my fascination started with it because you could see how it just, you know, some of the philosophies just made more sense for MMA, which is, you know, getting top top position. And you could see it already taking place where people would turtle to stand up because it was much more important to try and get back on your feet 
uh, than to play guard where you can be pinned. And I mean, even the use of the word pin now is something that Danaher kind of revolutionized, which now every jujitsu person will understand what a pin is. It was maybe three years ago that no one was using it. And I think that that's kind of in terms of where things are going, that's is probably one of the biggest uh, things that I've realized is that jujitsu will eventually just consume whatever it um you know it comes in contact with con- contact with mm-hmm. and which is also the power of jujitsu that it, it it is just you know it will take those things from catch wrestling that are useful and then just implement them and then all of a sudden they become jujitsu um <laughs> yes you know they because th- and so much of that has come from Danaher. I mean, now people understand what a claw claw grip is, which again, you know, a couple of years ago, no one used that, and now they just, you know, they just, you know, they don't know where, exactly where it came from, but of course, it becomes just a accepted piece of terminology. And, you know, all those moves have a long history in, uh, you know, folk style wrestling in America, in catch wrestling. You can find it, they've been using it for years, and, um, and it it will just be consumed by jujitsu, I think, and then just become jujitsu is is my ultimate understanding now on it, you know, and which is the, again the beauty of jujitsu. It's interesting because like when you know the the latter half of Damian Maya's career, when you watch Gilbert Burns, they go jujitsu. These guys are just wrestlers now; they are wrestling, and then yeah. seeking out rear naked chokes uh, effectively. Um, do you think you, you'd said you know in terms of how big jujitsu is now, it it will you know it'll create a wave and usurp everything? Do you think it's sort of reached a peak? Like again, when I look at it historically, it's it's sort of like when you think about Californian karate in the nineteen seventies or. Mm. American kickboxing in the 1980s or something like that. Do, do you think this has long-term sustainability or do you think we're sort of reaching a peak where other martial arts might be, you know, come and, and take it over at some point? Yeah, I think, you know, that's, uh, you know, with the example of, you know, karate in the eighties or, you know, even all, all those other martial arts schools, the fact that there are still uh, schools out there um, that, you know, you know a, a wide variety, Kung Fu, Wing Chun, uh, you know, Krav Maga, there are people still training these martial arts when, to be honest, I, f- I figured that, oh, well, after MMA kind of came on the scene, all these places are going to die off and no one's going to want to do it anymore. And that, but they're still here, you know, and they're still training people and people are still enjoying it. And, and uh, you know, they're still profitable. I think that that even if jujitsu hits a peak, I think there will still be the, uh, you know, people practicing it in, in a professional manner, no matter what. And that what you realize is with these other martial arts, one thing that they've got well, a tra- traditional martial arts is their ability to, you know, build a culture, build an environment that is welcoming to people and introduce them to the sport in certain ways. And they've had a bit more time to do that. Uh, whereas, you know, I think jujitsu itself, that is something that it can, uh, with being such a, a wide field with of techniques, it can certainly uh, improve on as a, as a general rule. Like, you know, we probably don't want to be showing face chokes on your first day, um, as, as I think that would scare people off, and rightly so. Uh, so, you know, as these other techniques come into play, just that ability to help people understand what the actual sport is, how it operates, the purpose of it, which again, you know, brings up your point to it, you know, moving away from self-defense, 
it was, it's very easy to explain positional disadvantages in jujitsu with the ability to get punched in the face. Mm. Um, whereas if you kind of take that away, then people who have never seen the sport and don't really know what it is, or, you know, don't have an understanding of certain techniques, it can be a bit more difficult to try and explain why a position could be good or bad. If you can just keeping escape into a, into a leg lock from mount, why would you, you know, what's wrong with, with, with being there? So, I think that is kind of where the evolution would would have to go in terms of the popularity of the sport. But I think that's as a whole, I think it's still got, you know, it's still got a bit to go. I think they're going to go larger for ADCC. I think Nogi's going to go you know, still got a while before it, it hits its peak. Um, and it'll be that, that will be where things probably continue to rise next and how much that can be sustained will be we'll, we'll find out okay uh when we take this again back to fighting then i guess that the next question is what are your thoughts on organizations that allow kicking down opponents yeah i mean i like watching it i can't same, same. <laughs> <laughs> so i can't lie i mean I enjoy watching, you know, old school prides and, you know, Shogun Hua, uh, you know, stomping people. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's the rule set in one as well. And I think, yeah. it, I think it, it provides, you know, again, it, I'm, I'm just circling this round back of, of what is jujitsu and, and, and what does this mean for all the guys that are diverging training this way? If they do want to get into MMA and they're, they're choosing to be on the bottom, they're, they're, they're not wrestling. Again, all jujitsu is done in an open mat space that there's no wall or cage to, to wrestle against. Mm. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I've liked watching it, but I mean, I could probably if if they if they if a, if one just you know takes the rules out again, I'm not probably not going to complain that that the that there's less people getting kicked in the head on the ground. You know, like that's that's a that's an acceptable rule to have, <laughs> even as much as I enjoyed watching pride and and the one fc because some of the the not uh, there was one particular i think it was roger werter in one fc that was just oh he just terrible to him didn't he yeah, yeah. it's at lakes i remember that one because it, it wasn't it wasn't only soccer kicking it was stomps as well i think yeah was the, big, the big thing hey but at least he got a win because he yeah. was i think he was on a, a bit of a slide yes <laughs> so you know i can watch that and say oh, okay we don't really need to need to see that but um yeah, I mean, it does change the game dramatically. I mean, one of the biggest things is definitely the front headlock position when you can knee uh, knee to a grounded opponent. Uh, so front headlock and north-south uh, position when you can knee to a grounded opponent become probably one of the more, or you know, two of the more devastating positions you can secure in MMA, which, uh, you know, for striking, which with those rules taken out, they're actually you know, not very advantageous at all in terms of striking. So those are the two positions that really change things. I mean, you could just, uh, Mayhem Miller did a lot in his early early career where you could just get to north-south and just lift your hips up and, and uh, you know, knee to the head. Yeah, fair. Um, so but those are the two, two spots I'd really consider. Well, there's a few fights from that Pride era. Like, I think the most brutal one that I remember was Arona Sakuraba in that position. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, uh, Coleman finished Vovchenchen for the first Pride GP there. Yep. And I feel like Vovchenchen did it to Mark Kerr as well, if I'm not mistaken, around that, that time. And, uh, but yeah, it's like a stuffed shoot can be yeah. the, the, the death toll, can't it? Yeah. Um, it, it's a good place to, to segue to. 
in modern wrestling, and I said, this is one of the questions I want to ask you about. It, it, to me, it feels like we are not seeing traditional double legs in MMA anymore. I, I was saying, I think Curtis Blades is probably yeah. one of the few guys that I feel like still uh, bases a game. There's still a couple guys in Bellator because Bellator takes longer. You know, that they, they seem to develop guys uh, a little bit longer. And it seems to me that a lot of it more is, is back to body lock clinching with some sort of variation of a takedown from there into a single or into a back take you've been noticing as well it just seems like the the amount of effort required for like a blast double uh isn't worth it to a lot of guys these days yeah so i i think yeah it, a, a big part is the effort uh required to finish a takedown like that and then the ability then to maintain control on the ground is a bit is a bit more difficult so if you I uh, can take someone down off a trip with a body lock. Then you've already got a chest-to-chest uh, connection uh, yeah. and able to control a bit better once it hits the mat. Another thing that I think we're seeing is just, you know, from single legs trips where just off-balancing just to try and get people's hands onto the mat and then chasing the back from there. So I think it is, uh, you know, just driven by that element of control once it hits the mat. Uh, and just trying to, you know, make that as advantageous as possible. So I think that's something that a lot more jujitsu people are doing, just trying to, in MMA, just trying to off-balance, get hands on the mat, and then and seek the back from there um, is something something that's happening. So, and, you know, that's part of as people are getting better defending, as people are using the wall to get up uh, a lot better, uh, that is just the, that's just where the evolution's gone. Mm. That's if I'm not that, that's effectively how Chandler lost the fight against Poirier, wasn't it? Did, didn't he effectively shoot in and then he had they had so much force that they kind of rolled over on the mat and I think Poirier took his back from there. So I can't can't remember that exactly. I did watch it but blanking on it. Alright. Um so as we said, heel hooks are where sport BJJ is at. Um we just had the UFC on, on the weekend, but effectively at the moment and for the last couple of years we've all been talking about Dagestani wrestling. Um that that seems to be where where the UFC is is at uh, at the moment. Um, I guess before we talk about where you think that'll go from that, give me the in your opinion, what is the core of what makes uh, you know their wrestling game plan a little bit different from what we might have seen previously? Sure. So, I mean, I think really what makes what makes the core is their culture of uh, you know wrestling for so long uh, and 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 just wrestling from such a young age and then coming up in that in that environment in terms of the actual techniques itself i really feel that it was its exposure to american folk style wrestling that caused it to kind of take the shape especially with habib uh of of what we really consider his style so, uh, which, sorry do, do you mean him moving over here to like train at aka and the exposure yeah, to that is that yeah. okay all right. So I, I, I really think that that is, you know, and, and his exposure to, you know, Daniel Cormier, perhaps um, even if it wasn't necessarily like information or techniques that they showed him, it would have been that having to deal with those problems that the uh, folk style wrestlers were giving him that influenced the style that we kind of see or associate with it, like, you know, the inside wrist rides and things like that, that we see take place in you know, in the UFC and, and kind of what we, what we associate with that, with that top pressure. Um, so I think it's just that, that long background uh, and, and culture and strong wrestling culture that they come from with then the exposure to, uh, you know, American folk style wrestling techniques that 
kind of influence what we consider, at least in the MMA scene, as their particular style. So my takeaway from this whole thing is there isn't Dagestani wrestling. It's just Daniel Cormier again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, probably hard to undersell his his influence, I'm sure. But there is, I mean, they, I mean, they do have a particular style on the world stage and they, where they're still incredibly successful. So we can't say it's not, but it's just what we see in MMA, I think, it is in somewhat a reaction to the you know problems that they've that they had initially coming in and facing some some of the american wrestlers mm, okay well we'll just talk about the fights a little bit more and then we'll start to, to wind down for today um if we were talking about some of this pride activity i, I mean there's a, you know it's probably only old schoolers like, like myself yeah. that remember this but shogun was what th- three weeks ago yeah lost in the ufc fader has had his retirement fight Two weeks ago now, uh, yeah. in Bellator, um, they're done. That 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 is effectively the last of the great Pride champions that that, that I can think of um, from that era. It is now done, done and dusted. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you sort of remember about that time? And, and I guess we'll, we'll I'll ask a, a follow up question after that. But I, I mean, this to me, this is what brought me into the sport. You know, or, yeah. originally. Yeah, I, I mean, the at least for me, it was that. Uh, I mean, just how many individual characters there seem to be where now it's very with it's very hard for people in the UFC at least to kind of break out and separate themselves from the rest of the pack where there was so much personal expression with with the the fighters in pride with you know, entrances and just iconic uh you know shorts that they would wear or something like that and just the ability to kind of put put their personality across themselves, which I would uh, attribute to a, a somewhat carryover from professional wrestling in Japan, which is then, you know, can go back to catch wrestling again, uh, which has kind of been, uh, it's, uh, you know, deliberately removed from the UFC, I think, and uh, somewhat homogenized that I've, I think is a real shame because there was just, you know, you see it, I guess, with uh, Ryzen, uh, just that that pageantry and celebration of the individual fighters themselves for who they are uh, that was kind of quite quite sad to see Fatal go out like that. I'll say mm, it's. Uh, I mean, it was, it was to be expected. To yeah. Be honest, but but it's it's a pretty unforgiving sport. Where, where okay, so Fader's now a, a point of contention. So is is he the greatest heavyweight of all time? Is is it Stipe or uh, you know, t- to me, guys like Kane are, are right in that conversation as well. What, what do you sort of think about these guys? Yeah, I think like if you probably just look at, you know, in terms of it's it's different when they, when you look at the different eras because clearly guys, you know, guys like Kane fought, you know, better competition in terms of, you know, their their opponent's skill levels and his own skill level. But just the breadth of what Fedor was able to accomplish still puts him as the GOAT for me. Um, but I, that's just the issue with comparing people from different from different times. Um, I mean, what he was able to do over such a long period of time uh, was just truly incredible. Whereas there might, you know, Stipe had a shorter run, or you know, well, he still he still you know who knows how much longer he will go for, but um, and probably beat people of a higher skill level caliber. Um, but just in the context of the time, I think it's still got to be Fedor. 
I'm not sure. I, I think so too, but I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. I, I think he had the longest run though. I think it was like seven years or something yeah. along those lines, which I think. And there were some great fighters in there, but there was also. Um, Zulahino. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Ogawa and a few other guys. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. so we can't, we can't put them on the same pedestal as, as uh, some True. of these other competitors. Okay. This, this weekend, um, I'm glad that we got to do the, uh, the, the interview with you today because we've seen uh the the culmination of of you know possibly one of the greatest fights that, that we've seen all time um just yesterday at least over here in australia yeah ufc 284 makashev and, and volkanovsky uh, nobody gave volkanovsky a chance um again I, I was probably initially in that camp but over over the couple of weeks i got very very bullish on the way that he just he just talked right to the camera and he goes no because i'm gonna smash this guy and it wasn't um you could tell it wasn't hyperbole you could tell he honestly believed that he was just going to walk in there and dispatch that guy and this fight was close i, I think mm. um uh Shev, i think i gave one two two possibly up up in the air and four but i definitely gave three and five to volk and as i said to you i, I think volkanovsky did not win that match but he certainly didn't lose it and I, I i think it's one of those things that's deserving of an immediate rematch where i think volk could win um what were your sort of takeaway thoughts from I, yeah, no, I, I agree there, and I would love to see an, an immediate rematch. I gotta, I have to go back and watch the fight again today because I think yesterday I was watching it through Volk colored glasses. Screaming. Where, yeah, I think my bias because in my mind I, I really thought Volk had won it going into the going into the judges' decision. I think probably two, three, and five taking those rounds, but um, and I, I thought he outstruck him, but uh, I was probably heavily biased on my initial watching i got into it as a fan and and maybe not uh looking at it so objectively so mm. i'll have to go back and watch it again but i think either way it, it, it there's no way that anyone should doubt volkanovsky's talent or potential in anything he decides to to challenge himself with what he's what he was able to do coming up in 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 weight uh from his normal division now to to really give it to Islam, uh, you know, speaks volumes. I know that they've put Islam now as the pound for pound number one, which I don't think makes complete sense considering Volk was the guy coming up in weight and did, you know, gave Islam a, a hell Agreed. of a battle. Agreed. Um, that's kind of that, you know, that I think if they do an immediate rematch, which would be awesome, I'd love to see it. The only downside puts those two divisions on hold. Um but I, th it's just the way Volkanovski was able to, you know, to get back up, out wrestle, even going for his own takedowns, really, you know, taking that mystique um, away uh, from uh, from Islam. I, I, I mean, I'm just so impressed with with what he did. Mm, I'd, I'd like to see the rematch too, because I think Yair ends up being. I technically being a worse matchup for with all the spinning kicks from the outside. I think is is not great. Um, I thought I thought there was some, oh, I was watching Chael Sonnen last night because he he went straight to broadcast after this and he was saying that you know we need to review some of this because Makashev sitting on his back not really actively attacking and Volkanovski sitting there just pumping this fist into his head and landing 20, 30 clean shots and he goes so that that should have been a Volk round. This sort of begs the question. I mean, if if you've gone back and watched this far, that this this takes me right back to when. Boss was on the bottom of Kevin Randleman in UFC 20 and still came away with the victory. I mean, how do you sort of score something like that where even though the guy is in a disadvantaged position, he's still the one attacking? 
Yeah, so maybe I got to go back and check the rules. <laughs> but my understanding of it was that now that control, control in itself or like takedowns in itself doesn't score if there's more damage done in a position. So, I mean, that's a hard case to make when the control is so dominant. Um, but my understanding was that it's now control itself is not rewarded. It's its its own reward is to increase your ability to score damage. But I might have that wrong because, uh, <laughs> um, because I mean, I think that would put that, you know, bulk's ability to pepper him with shots ahead. But I clearly, I don't think, the, the the control there was is so dominant that they probably should win as well. Mm. All right. So as, as we begin to wrap this up, but when we look at this kind of kind of picture as a whole, then who who are you know we come to you as the expert? We watch the Sunny Brown breakdowns. Who's who who are the those greats? Who are the top five MMA guys in, in Sunny Brown's opinion? Yeah. So the number one is GSP, um, with without a doubt, I think. Um, just the, the model that he put forward is just incredible. And I mean, to be honest, I, you know, recency bias, but we, got, I think Volker will have his spot there um, no matter what at, at, some, at some point, just even if he's perhaps still a bit criminally under uh, overlooked, um, you know, he's still got plenty of time left to go and just the, what he's been able to achieve is, is pretty incredible. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's Connor's a tough one. I think what he was able to do to change things uh, in terms of the industry as a whole has to be has to be respected. Uh, likewise, Ronda Rousey, I think uh, you know they they kind of have their place just as they had techni- uh, technical ex- excellence in in specific areas and just as the, how they were able to impact the sport as as a whole um, was incredible. And then you know you got to put put Hoist on that level as well. Um, I think uh, other people technical, technically wise, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I put GSP on there twice. He is the man when, when it comes to it. Yeah. Right. Interesting list. There's a few, a few names. I'm quite surprised that that didn't pop up on there. All right. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll finish off with this. We, we, we got a couple of guys, we got someone leaving the UFC and someone coming back in. What does this mean for Francis Ngannou? Is is he going to pursue? Uh, I don't think the boxing routes. I, I I think the debate has been done and settled. MMA guys do not perform well at the highest levels of boxing. I don't think they, mm. you know, they don't understand the traps and, and all the other particularities that boxers have. Studying that, of course, they can do well on these mid range cards, as we've seen with like Aldo and, and Vitor and a whole bunch of other guys. But um, what do you think that that sort of does for? in Ghana and, and I guess his legacy. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I hope he gets a massive payday in, in some form or another uh, to take a chance boxing and, you know, Hey, he's going to have the, a chance to, you know, he's going to have that punch as chance as such, or, you know, you put anyone to sleep, I'm sure if he connects, but it's too, it's similar to jujitsu with no gay and MMA. If you're spending all your time, focusing and specializing on one particular sport, then it's your advantages are just going to be so much uh, in that area that it's going to be hard for anyone to come in and, and over and overtake it. If they've been splitting their time between multiple goals and multiple uh, disciplines. So I, you know, I, I'm sure he, yeah, as you said, he'd be able to beat many mid-level opponents, but just the fascination or, 
thoughts that they're going to come in and you know immediately beat the best person in the world in a individual discipline is just so difficult a task to actually accomplish that I wouldn't be expecting it. But I guess it's also that reason that it becomes a fascinating topic and point, you know, and gets people to tune in and watch. Uh, well, the last two guys that are coming back in are, are two of the biggest names in our sport. I don't know, John Jones has been gone for like a decade. I don't know how long, yeah. six, seven years. He's finally, Crazy. finally feels like he's bulked up to the point that he's comfortable of coming coming back in and of course we missed the fights that we were expecting to, to, to come into which was Stipe first and then Nganu so uh, we've now got Cyril uh, personally I think he's going to be as dominant as he ever was I don't think this is going to affect him in, in any way um, I think he's still got just so many advantages over mm. everyone um, and if he's going to have trouble with heavier strikers as long as they don't knock him out he's just going to take him down what, what do you reckon he's going to do once he's back yeah, I mean, there is that question just because he's been out for so, for such a long time. But I would think I would still be picking him over Cyril. Um, just the way Cyril went for that footlock is it would turn me off. Turn me off his yes. ability, his ring awareness. Yes. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, and then Connor's back. I, I I honestly don't think there's a better matchup that could have been booked uh, for him. I think this is just because um, it's whether or not Chandler can bum rush him and knock him out or whether Connor keeps him at range and, and does an equivalent. I, I think this fight is can be an absolute banger. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I mean, I think, you know, Connor's the, the, the prime of Connor is probably on the way out um, or, or it's probably done. Um, I don't think he's probably going to make that, you know, that historic run he did. I think is you know now history, and but yeah, I mean I I I think he could still uh, put Chandler away if he's able to to kind of put it together. Fair enough. Look, that's all I got for you today, Sonny. We're out of here by by noon today. I uh, said I've reached out to you a couple of times, so I really appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, no, um, thank you. To do this, and as I said, we're only an hour away, so the next thing is is now to actually have you come yeah. and say hello and, and maybe do a little bit of training with us up here. Yeah, that'd be a pleasure. All right, cool. Uh, any final thoughts or anything you want to add before we sign off? No, just if you're interested, sunnybrown.net is the website to go to, and I've got links to, to everything, I, everything I do up there. And, yeah, thank you very much for, uh, for having me on today. More than welcome. I hope we can do it again, and we'll, we'll explore some other topics in due course. Awesome. All right, thanks very much. Thanks so much.